What's up, guys? Uh, welcome to another episode of Elite Physique University. Um, I'm here with John and Jason, as usual. Uh, we have a really fun guest on today. We're going to talk a lot about muscle hypertrophy and muscle growth. Uh, but first, before we get into that, of course, we got to go over anything that's new with you guys. So um, anything exciting happened this last week? Well, I guess I could kick this off real quick. I'll just make mine short and sweet because I really want to spend as much time as we can with our with our guests today because this is going to be awesome. Uh, we dropped a new product with Fat Muscle Project. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see it's premium collagen. It's 100% bovine collagen peptides, and we it's unflavored. We've been excited for that for a while, so we've had a lot of our female uh, customers asking for that, so we got one, and we just dropped it. Um, and then other than that, we dropped our fat muscle project podcast with myself and Jason Wells. And funny story is when I went to do the very first intro, I was so used to saying, Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. I'm John Gorman, your host joined by Jason Theobald. And I, I almost caught myself. I'm like Jason Wells. Um, but we dropped our first podcast. If you guys want to hear a little bit more, we're going to talk a lot about business, quite a bit about coaching for gen pop over on that podcast. So we'll have that in the show notes here. It'll kind of be, you know, Jason's got a sister podcast with um, with his team over there as well. And this will be my podcast with Fat Muscle. So if you guys just want more content to listen to, you can check that out. But pretty much it for us. We're moving into a new office. We're going to be able to do about three times the volume out of our new Fat Muscle office. So we're doing that today and tomorrow. So just busy, busy, super, super blessed. So that's it for me in a, in a nutshell. Wow. Always busy, but but busy is good. So. Uh-huh. Uh, I, guess that's, I guess that's me uh seven days last seven days have been pretty eventful um i'm doing a lot of uh mentoring now i have three groups uh running and i'm taking a wait list for the fourth um go it's an introduction to functional nutrition and um we go over 16 different modules covering anything from hashimoto's to pcos to um secondary hypothalamic amenorrhea it's been going really well and I'm really enjoying that. Um, we went to Costa Rica for four days. Uh, my buddy Billy was there as his girlfriend's 40th. Um, it was cool, but it was uh, the rainy season. So it rained in the morning and then it was overcast. And I'm not, I love being at the pool when it's sunny and hot, but when it's overcast, I'm kind of like, yeah, give me an hour and I'm, I'm ready to roll. So that wasn't great. I think if I, go there again i would go you know june july may somewhere around there um, but that was cool got back really late though sunday night like 11 30 sometimes you're just like man is it even worth it <laughs> we had to be at the bus uh that morning at 8 a.m so our travel was from 8 a.m to 11 30 at night so yeah so monday was rough um but other than that like i signed a few more clients um have some appointments set up uh, the HRT clinic is going to hit another record month. So uh, we're, we're doing good work there. So um, yeah, everything's going pretty solid. Awesome. No more trips coming up now anytime. No, soon. Well, <laughs> this weekend we got our, our new ethics. Um, oh, that's right. Ambassador and uh, sponsored athlete meet up in Nashville. So right. <laughs> I do have to travel there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but at least I can drive. Yeah. Yeah, it's not so far, but well, cool. Um, my week has been pretty normal, I guess. I got like quite a few new clients again this last week. Like, I think I got like three more this week, which is awesome. Um, and then we had a little like wedding reception thing just kind of at our house this weekend for people that didn't get to come out. So that was pretty fun. Um, just 
a few like family and friends and stuff. And then this coming weekend, I have to drive four hours to the cities for a bodybuilding show. Uh, some help. I usually help out and expedite those. Um, and then I have to drive back that night. And then the next day I have powerlifting meet that I got to be there for athletes here in Fargo. So busy weekend for me, but all, all good things. So, yeah, great. Um, so then kind of bringing it over to our guest who's here with us today. Um, so if you guys haven't ever heard of him, he's a little, um, little bit of an important person. Uh, he's a lifetime natural bodybuilder, author, and researcher. Uh, he's very well known for his publications as uh, Max Muscle Plan 2.0, and he even wrote a whole textbook, you guys. Uh, it's called Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy. So we would like to welcome on Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. So how's what's new with you? Well, it's good. Uh, I actually just got back from speaking in Fran at the University of Frankfurt in Germany, which was a really rewarding experience. Uh, but other than that, uh, for me, it's always a lot of research going on at our lab and a lot of teaching. And I'm focused on our master's students. I'm the director, graduate director at our program. So I have a, a lot of terrific master's students that are in varying stages of carrying out uh, their studies. And I want to give a particular shout out just this week to my student, Avery Rosa, who successfully defended his uh, thesis on uh, rest intervals versus in uh, lower body multi versus single joint, on um, multi joint versus single joint exercise. Some interesting findings that we should have published soon. So shout out to Avery. Other than that, that it, basically that's my life is my, uh, my teaching, my research and my students. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, a lot goes into those uh, and doing theses and defending master's um, degrees and everything. So very awesome. Um, so today, you guys, we were going to talk a lot about muscle hypertrophy with Dr. Schoenfeld. So I guess first question to get into it is just kind of what got you interested so heavily in researching like this area? Yeah, well, I don't think we have enough time on this podcast to get into <laughs> the whole psychology of it. But I mean, it came, uh, I'll give you the short course is that I was a really skinny kid uh, going into college and uh, basically I found bodybuilding or bodybuilding found me and I got fascinated with hypertrophy and I started out following the routines of my favorite bodybuilders back in the day when they actually were sending uh, magazines with in plastic through the, through the mail. Um, and uh, ultimately found that my, uh, my results plateaued fairly readily and I started to seek better ways to optimize my own genetic potential and uh, started looking to research, which set off this whole chain of events where I was a personal trainer, specializing in physique enhancement in terms of uh, working with high-level uh, physique athletes, bodybuilders. At that time, it was fitness, fit, the females. The sole division at that point in the late 90s was fitness, uh, which was, they ha actually had a gymnastics routine. You guys probably are too young to, well, maybe you, Jason. No, I, you, John, can remember. I, I remember it. John remembers it too. Yeah. yeah. Um, and anyway, it uh, set off this uh, whole transition for me where ultimately I started teaching and decided to go back. I got my uh, master's degree in 2009, I believe it was. And then went on, I started teaching in the university and got my PhD and uh, here I am. And uh, basically uh, research research and teaching are what floats my boat. So, uh, and, and as you mentioned, my focus has been on 
muscle hypertrophy. So I think one of the primary things that has made my research so popular is that I was a personal trainer for many years working with, as I mentioned, high-level physique athletes. So I'm a kid in the candy store now. I'm answering questions that I always wanted answered. And you would think that we had research on all these topics, but when I was coming into the field, one of the things that really stood out to me is how little research there was actually on hypertrophy. Most of the sports science research was focused, when I say most, almost exclusively was focused on strength and power, which, you know, for sports performance, that's obviously hypertrophy is a product. Generally, the only reason hypertrophy was studied was because there's a correlation between strength and hypertrophy. Uh, but sports performance in the general context doesn't look at uh, hypertrophy. It looks at strength and power. The only time it really matters purely for hypertrophy is in bodybuilders and physique athletes, which kind of was the bastard child, you know, that was kind of shunned by most researchers yeah. at the time. And uh, it was kind of thought of as the steroid induced uh, field that we just kind of want to, don't want to look at and, and give credence to. But uh, for me, that was my life. And, and look, in, in fairness, I'm sure uh, you guys can, uh, your practitioners, you can attest. I, as a practitioner, as a personal trainer, I can count on one hand that I trained several thousand students, several thousand uh, uh, clients over the years. I can count on one hand the time that someone would come in and say, I want to get an extra one inch on my jump height, or I want to take an, a second off of my sprint time. When you're dealing with the general public. Now, yeah, I worked with some athletes, and but I'm talking the general public, you know, who's recreational athletes. Or, why do they come in? Hey, I want to look great naked. And uh, that was my focus as a um, I, I went into bodybuilding, like I said, as being a skinny kid, uh, I found lifting weights and that substantially improved my self-esteem, which led me into saying, Hey, I want to, uh, prove it to myself that I can compete as a natural bodybuilder. That's kind of the short course. And, uh, again, the long course would take well over an hour to go through. Mm -hmm. I had a very tortuous, uh, a road to getting to where I am now. Brad, Brad, I've got a question that'll kind of frame our episode. Um, we're going to have, we already have a lot of people that are big time bro scientists, myself included, Jason, we, we've talked about it. We've used a lot of bro science over the years. And we also look at research as well, because we, we've looked at all of it. I want to kind of frame this, if you would, because you're going to bring in a lot of people from the research community that are going to listen to this show. What's the importance for you in research to be able to look at some of the bro science that's out there, some of these ideas that haven't been proven that lead to research over the years? Because probably one of the highlights of my professional career was in our friend, Dr. Bill Campbell, got with me and we put, helped put together the first refeed study ever done. And I got to write the diets for those. And it was a really big deal for me. But up until that point, no one had ever done research on refeeds. But guys like me and Jason and Kate, like we've been doing refeeds with our clients. We just didn't have the research to support it. How important for you has bro science been to see some of these things and then to be able to go put them in the lab because you've been really well known for taking things that people talk about and doing the research on them. Yeah, and, that, and you, you basically crystallized it that the best research comes from the field. So people that dismiss quote unquote bro science are just completely missing the boat. To say that you just buy into whatever someone from the gym says, that would be misguided because that's a very low level of evidence. But 
generally speaking, bodybuilders do things because they are working. And it doesn't mean that other things might be work might work better. That's why you need to test them objectively. Bro science is unobjective. So, you know, there's many things that confound what quote unquote someone I got results from this says. Number one, what's their pharmacology is the first thing that often you ask in that. But also, I mean, genetics, lifestyle factors. There's so many factors that when you don't control them and you just have an N equals one, anyone could say, you go just to the biggest guy in the gym. Like I said, when I was an up and coming or aspiring bodybuilder, I I did Lee Labrada's leg routine and Lee Haney's back routine. You know, I did the routines of my favorite uh, bodybuilders at the time and they worked to an extent. I got results, but at some point, you know, within a fairly short period of time, I started to plateau from that because I didn't have the, their genetics nor their pharmacology. And that's why you need to take more objective approaches as to what can work. But I, I wanna say this, so research can then objectively, basically research is a way of systematically examining or evaluating a, uh, a routine or, or, or a variable that seems to work uh, in the field and saying, hey, is this really working because, or, or working the best or are there other things that might work better, you know? And but I, I think the important thing to realize is once we get the science, it still reverts back to an n equals one, because science will never tell you what to do. Just science is going to report the means, what is working optimally for the group as a whole, for your 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 subject pool. It is not going to tell you what might work best for John Gorman or Kayla or Jason, and thus you need to if you are a true, what's called evidence-based practitioner, you will take what science says, use that as a template and say, you know what? Yeah, the science says this, but there are these gaps in the literature and this works better. I have experimented with this and I then can say this works better for me personally. So science will, will get you in the ballpark of what to do. It is not going to tell you what to do. And certainly, I think one of the important distinctions is that uh, some people think that evidence-based is is deferring to research and it isn't. Research, like I said, is just giving you these guidelines. And finally, I would say that um, there is a polarity that exists in this field, which uh, is to me something that's very personal because I've been at both ends of the spectrum, but there is kind of this headbutting between practitioners or bodybuilders, let's say, um, sometimes personal trainers and researchers that researchers will say, ah, the practitioners just are, bro scientists and the bro scientists or, or the practitioners will say they have no clue. They're white lab coat geeks who don't know what's going on in the field. And really not only should they coexist, their coexistence and their intermingling will bring about a, uh, will optimize, ultimately optimize our understanding of what to do. So we, both sides need each other. And like I said, I've been at both ends. I was a, a, pr a practitioner for 18 years before I became a, uh, an educator, a researcher. So I can speak on behalf of both. And I think uh, one of the real, one of the things that really needs to change is this, I think, lack of objectivity and this misguided opinion that you either should be one or the other, when ultimately the, the best practitioners should be both. And I'll, I'll finish by saying uh, my former colleague, my, one of my close friends, as you know, uh, John, uh, John Meadows, 
um, to me was the essence of a of an evidence based practitioner because I you know I was one of his mentors and he would ask me questions and try to get insights into research but then use his insights I mean as you know he was I guess both of you Jason and Kayla do as well um, was just so intricate in terms of um, looking for things that might work and, and experimenting. And that we tried to then, and hopefully others in the future will, take some of the stuff he did and, and put it into practice. But he was always willing to change his opinion and, and to exper re-experiment. And, and that is what a true practitioner should be doing if you want to optimize results overall for everyone. Yeah, well said. Well said. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's too much of like new like coaches or even people just tra training being too married to like one idea of like this is the way I should train and that's it because either their idol did it but again like you said like the genetics plays a role into it and you have to have that objectivity to be like well is this actually working or what happens when it stops working so being able to pivot and to also understand and see other points of view because not everyone knows everything so I think that that's really big but well said yeah um, so then, you know, talking about like hypertrophy ranges. So like a lot of times we all think of like hypertrophy ranges as like reps of eight to 12, right. But, you know, I know you've done studies on this. Is that typically, you know, where like the hypertrophy range is or what does your research support for that? Yeah. So this has become one of my hobby horse topics. Uh, so first thing I want to say is that evidence exists on a continuum. Uh, people think, you know, they, people generally want yes or no answers, uh, basically do this or that or not that. And uh, our ability to give recommendations is based on the strength of, of evidence. And sometimes evidence is weak. And when it is, I will say, you know what, this is based on, you always have to give an opinion or else you're doing nothing. So I would say, look, this is what we think now, but, you know, I, I certainly may change my opinion. The topic you just brought up is something that I have now a very strong opinion on because to me, the evidence on this is so compelling, it's almost overwhelming. That uh, study after study after study now has shown that you can make roughly similar whole muscle hypertrophy gains over a very wide course of a uh, wide spectrum of repetition ranges, up to 30 to even 40 reps per set provided you are training with a high level of effort, so close to muscle failure, unless I have to go to failure, but certainly be in that range where you are substantially challenging the muscle. Uh, very little differences in hypertrophy. And this has been shown study after study in trained subjects, untrained subjects, women, men, older, younger. I mean, every population in every configuration you can possibly look at. And when you start seeing the breadth of this evidence, uh, to me, I just don't see how I could um, change my opinion in the future. And by the way, I will caveat this with saying that I had the exact opposite. When I came into the field, to that circa 2010, I was of the opinion that you needed to train in this hypertrophy range. And I actually, the first paper I ever published was called Repetitions and Muscle Hypertrophy, which looking back, I made some novice errors. I guess that would be a nice way to say it in terms of my thinking along in writing this. But it was 2001, I think was published. And I made the case why that 8 to 12 range was the best hypertrophy range. And basically, I was kind of using a reductionist theory that bodybuilders train in this range. So why was this the best range? And 
which is not the way a good researcher would do it. But anyway, here's the, some caveats to this. Um, I think that in general, from an efficiency standpoint, eight to 12 or six, somewhere in that eight to 12, six to 12, six to 15, is a more efficient way to train that first of all, training with very high reps is not very pleasant for most people. There's a lot of metabolic acidosis, which is not pleasant to uh, deal with. Um, with the low repetition ranges, you need to do more sets. So when we're talking about like three to five reps, you generally are going to need to add on more sets to equate the volume load to achieve the same effect. So I think training in that, um, somewhere in that eight to 12, six to 12 range is a good general default, probably for at least 50 or so percent, 50, maybe 60% of your training. I would also say there may be benefits uh, to training at the extreme ranges for muscle fiber type. There, It's possible. And again, I want to, this is where the evidence is certainly not very strong, but it's possible that your high rep training and some evidence to suggest this uh, might target your type one fibers and your uh, heavier reps might target your type uh, two fibers. So it, it to me, it just kind of makes sense to do a majority of training, let's say 60%, 50, 60 in that uh, eight to 12 range, and then maybe some three to five, 20% in your lower and uh, another 20% in your 20 to 30 maybe. Uh, might that enhance if you're, and that is if you're a bodybuilder or someone that really wants to optimize their results. For the average Joe or Jane, I don't think it's going to make much difference. Right. Is is progressive overload the only way to grow? So what do you, yes, but what do you, refer, so when you talk about progressive overload, what are you referring to? Well, the one I'm referring to, and, and I'm, I want to hear your answer so everyone, you know, learns, but the one I'm referring to is like literally just putting more weight on the bar each time you're in the room. Correct. And that is excellent question, Jason. And, and the answer to that is a definitive no. So progressive, and that is, a, it's really a great transition and a great point is that um, people think of overload. And I guess part of it, the word load is in overload. So they think that adding load to the bar, but it's just been taken as gospel that if you want to grow, basically you pick a, a repetition range and yeah. And then when you get stronger, you, as you start progressing, you add load to the bar. So very interesting. You mentioned this, we just published a study. Um, it is now in print. It should be out by the way, I guess by the time this uh, podcast is is live because this Friday uh, it will be published. But we look, we basically objectively looked at that topic. And, and this is why research is so important. So we took two groups. We had both, so both groups started with 10RM. We got their 10RMs as a baseline. We then randomized one group to stay at that um, load. And they just progressed by, they would keep whatever load they did. And this was just for the lower body. So we did squats leg extension, uh, seated and standing, calf, seated and straight leg calf raises. And uh, the group that was baseline to 10RM, whatever load they started with, they just did more reps. And, and this was to failure. We trained them to muscle failure. The other group, we kept them in that 10, roughly eight to 12 repetition range. So we, we uh, looked at what their 10RM was, but you're never gonna keep them exactly at a 10RM when you're doing training to failure. So we, uh, when they started going above or below, we would just make the weight heavier or lighter to keep them in that eight to 12 range. And uh, literally, not only were there no differences in hypertrophy, 
there seemed to, the suggestion was, at least uh, there was some evidence that for the rectus femoris, the mid-quad muscle, uh, the rep, the adding reps group got somewhat better results, modestly. Now, could that have been just artifact? We don't know. Could there have been a mechanistic reason? But bottom line is certainly there was no evidence. I think this is the more important thing that you need to add load to the bar. At least, and I want to make this with the caveat, this was an eight-week study. So if you keep doing this over time, is there a point where if you just are going to 100 reps, you're going to say, well, no, probably not. We have other research that shows when you go above 40 reps or so, you're going to start to see diminishing returns for your muscle development. But on the other side of the coin, someone like yourself or anyone here, I'm sure Kayla and John the same, I know certainly you, Jason, is a, a competitive bodybuilder, your, the magnitude of your increases in reps are going to be small when you get to be more and more well-trained. So you're the chances that you're going to hit 40 reps when you're starting at a 10 RM, by the time you do that, that's going to be many years down the road, probably. It's not going to be in eight, you know, in eight weeks we trained. So these were trained subjects, but they were your average gym goer. They weren't the Jasons and Johns and Kayla's. Um, so, you know, these were people that are had at least a year of training. Some of them were quite well-trained, but there was a spectrum and some of them were able to increase their reps more. So I think that would be the answer to that is that at some point you may have to then start increasing load, but that point, especially as you get more advanced would be down the road. Okay. So basically, you know, for, I asked because, you know, I'm, I'm 44, uh, my joints are pretty decent, but I'm trying to keep them decent. So I just don't do the poundages I used to use. Um, but it sounds like as long as you're progressing in some way, whether it's reps, weight, maybe Volume. prop sets, uh, intensity techniques, force reps, you're, you're probably at least heading in the right direction to hypertrophy. Yeah, the, the bottom line is progressive overload really should be thought of as challenging your muscles beyond their present capacity. Yeah. But you need to constantly, in some way, that could be you can add volume, uh, potentially frequency, you know, doing, uh, let's say, maybe uh, volume packing into greater frequency over time. There, there's a lot of ways, uh, multiple ways that you can look at this. But in some way, you need to constantly challenge your body. And that's why muscles grow. Uh, look, the body adapts because all is the body human body cares about any uh, any living creature cares about his survival it doesn't care about looking jacked in a tank top or in a, in a <laughs> bikini all it cares about is surviving to the next day hey, that's and, important stuff <laughs> yeah and if you don't if you don't challenge it the body has no reason to think it's there's a survival threat and thus no reason to adapt so the reason that muscles grow at least by all means we can think of is because it enhances strength and thus uh, it's going to adapt by growing bigger and the stronger because you're challenging it in the way that's going to make it need to grow stronger and bigger. Uh, can I ask one more question, guys? Yeah, kind of, go for it. So um, Brad mentioned frequency over volume or vice versa. So I guess my segue question would be, if you were going to bring up a lagging body part for one of your clients back when you were a personal trainer and now you can apply the knowledge you have now, would you train it more frequently with less volume? Would you, what, what, what would, what would be kind of the over gist of how you would uh, approach that? Yeah, it's an excellent question. First of all, I will tell you that I still do occasionally consult with uh, pro bodybuilders and, okay. and 
high-level bodybuilders. So that's still somewhat of a passion of mine. I don't have much time, but I do selectively uh, do that. Uh, and yeah, I, I will give you a, for instance, I worked with a, uh, who's now a pro bodybuilder, but he was a high-level uh, plastic physique bodybuilder doing the, uh, and, and he's now 50, but he was competing in the, not the masters, he was competing in the open division. Huh in the uh, team universe, I believe it was, where he ended up getting his pro card. Anyway, he had done his, uh, he had uh, competed in this contest and he came in second for his pro, for the IFBB uh, Classic Physique Pro Card. His name's Joe Tolvi, by the way, shout out to him. Uh, terrific bodybuilder. Um, and uh, when he came to me and we decided to set out a course, he had certain body parts, namely his hamstrings and his side delts that were lagging body parts. Okay. So my general philosophy is you have a certain volume budget. Like there's a certain amount of, when you look at all your body parts together and you start doing massive amounts of volume, it's going to end up taxing you too much. So if you're going to give more volume to one body part, you take it away from another. Like at some point, you don't want to keep volume the same and then just keep adding on or you're going to end up with volume that's going to really trash that person at some point. And the sets will get, and the sessions will get longer. So what I do in, in my philosophy here, and by the way, this is based purely, there's no, no studies I've ever looked at this. So I'm giving you now my personal anecdote, my personal experience and my opinion on this. Um, but what we did was we added on, so for his hamstrings, we ended up doing 30 plus sets of uh, hamstring work every nine days it was. Now, when you start looking at a session, if you do too much, if you do a lot of volume in a given session, it tends to have diminishing returns. So you don't want to go above eight to 10 sets in general per muscle per session. So in getting that volume in, we did it. I increased the frequency. He was doing hamstrings, you know, two days a week uh, or two days over that course. We ended up doing it three days over the nine day period. So basically he was doing it every three days. And ultimately, the, to answer your question was we were using frequency to moderate volume. And that didn't count, by the way, the indirect work he got in squats and leg press, which is kind of, you don't get much out of that, but still some hamstring work. So you were doing 30 sets over nine day period with three sessions in the gym. Correct. So about 10 sets per session. That's correct. And we prioritized that. So he would do those first. Uh, so we didn't necessarily have to do it on leg day. I mean, we, yep. through some days he had, I think, two leg days in that nine day period. So one of the days was on a different day and he put that up front to prioritize it. So he was fresh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like it. That's great. That's, that's a, our, that's our, a our great one, Jason, for you to send over to Jeff Sue. He's always trying to bring uh, up those hands. hamstrings. Yeah. Like a little shout out to you, Jeff. If you guys don't mind, I'm going to jump in with another question because mm -hmm. I'm just geeking out now. Go Brad, ahead. I've been completely obsessed with the upper, the higher rep ranges, 20 to 30 rep range for a while. And then I saw the research come out and I started to look back and I know Jason will be included on this. Kayla, I'm not sure with your training yet, but what I'm about to ask you and get some feedback on <clears throat> kind of applies to both of us. So in 2016, I switched from training in the eight to 12 rep ranges a lot. And I just went completely opposite way and I did nothing but 20 to 30 rep ranges, the same amount of total sets, the same exercise, everything was the same, but I just changed that. And I want another friend of ours, Dr. Chad Kirksick, I went to his lab up in uh, St. Charles and I did DEXA scan before and after. And after about six months, my DEXA scans, and they were done the same time in the morning, fasted five days after a carb up the whole nine yards, all that was the same. It looked like a before and after. 
And I thought, what do, why does this, and it's not like I was doing a bunch of anabolics or anything. So I'm like, why did all of a sudden it look like a before and after? And I put on, it said six pounds of muscle. My question for you is, have you seen someone completely switch gears like that and make rapid progress because it's such a different approach? Is that something that you've seen in the research or that, that you have any kind of feedback on? Because I know Jason as well, Jason, I know you can speak to yours, but Jason has made insane progress since he won his pro card in 2016. And I know your rep ranges are always a lot higher. You take your time, you slow the rep ranges down, and it's it's kind of that approach. What's your take on that? Yeah, so I can't speak to that as far as um, research is not going to tell you mechanistically, and our studies tend to be eight weeks, you know, you're not going to see. But here's we do speculate that novelty may play a role in this. So again, it comes down to that survival mechanism. When you're challenging your body in a way it's not used to, that that conceivably could be a quote-unquote way of overload, if you will. I'm not sure. Again, you start getting into semantics and calling it something, but it is challenging it in a way that it is not used to being challenged. So one thing we do when we do our studies is to ask a lot of questions at the beginning. We do surveys uh, or questionnaires as to previous training practices. Uh, I don't remember specifically, but I believe it was less than 10% of the uh, subjects that we had in our, we did a, one study that looked at eight to 12 reps versus 20 to 30 reps and showed roughly equal hypertrophy. Um, it could be that maybe some of these results are due to enhanced uh, novelty factor stimuli. Um, and, and by the way, in that study, the biceps actually seem to show benefit to the higher rep range. So certainly it is a theory. Now, again, it could be, so we don't, again, I, I want to point out that the uh, research on this is still equivocal, but you could be very, your training could have been very type, type two dominant in your previous training and that perhaps type one fibers were underdeveloped and perhaps I keep uh, making sure to uh, highlight this when I'm saying perhaps, because we just don't know, but perhaps the uh, low load training did focus more on the type one fibers. I do want to give a caveat to this though. We, we did carry out a study doing seated and standing calf raises and uh, the soleus is a highly type one uh, type, uh, basically slow twitch type one muscle, 80% plus on average. And we did not show any better results with a high uh, rep versus low rep training approach. So that was kind of interesting. But I, I still, that was one study. You never put too much st uh, stock into a single study. And, and one more thing, and hopefully I'm not derailing this here, but it looks like we have time. If you would also comment on two things when it comes to the higher rep ranges. I know with my training, I kept the sets and everything the same, but when I calculated volume, when I went higher rep, my volume went up. So I was getting volume was higher. And then cell swelling is for bodybuilders. What's your take on the change? And maybe the volume was part of that but the cell swelling was massive. And how important is that for bodybuilders when it comes to muscle growth and hypertrophy? Yeah, so I'll take the question separately. The volume load, so generally when we look at volume and we've talked, uh, when you look at studies that certainly our group has carried out and made analyses that we've done, we generally look at sets. So we look at set volume. How many sets do you do per muscle per week? What you're talking about is volume load that sets times reps times load. And that when you're doing lighter loads, 
the volume load is always going to be much higher. But you have to temper that also with the the fact that when you're doing a very light load set, the initial reps that you're doing, even though the total number of reps are much higher, so quote unquote, the volume load is your first reps, the initial reps you're doing are very light, meaning they're not very challenging to the muscle. So you could look, there's different ways to look at that. Like if you're, if you're equating volume load, generally you have to look at that with similar loads to make good, you know, uh, to try to draw inferences on that. Because there are confounding issues that when you're using, let's say, let's say you're doing a curl with uh, 100 pounds versus 30 pounds, and you're doing, let's say, 10 reps, the first rep on a 100 pound curl is going to be a lot more taxing to your muscles than the the first rep on a 30 pound curl. However, you're going to get a lot more reps with the 30 pound curl, and thus the volume load will be higher. So that you have to take that somewhat in context. To your second question, which I think is a really interesting one. We don't know. Now, in vitro, meaning that in test tube, uh, when we look at research in test tubes, there is a lot of evidence that cell swelling has substantial effects on uh, enhancing anabolism, so enhancing muscle protein synthesis in various cell cell types, breast tissue, kidney, renal cells, kidney, uh, liver cells, and muscle cells even. And it also uh, decreases protein breakdown. So that would be a hypertrophy home run. Uh, but we don't have translational evidence to see how that might, you know, in a controlled fashion, how cell swelling actually translates into hypertrophy in practice. So I think it is a very interesting uh, speculation or theory. But um, it is, again, I think weak evidence that we have because until you're actually able to uh, localize that in a longitudinal human study in a training study and we can have evidence in in test tubes or in rodents uh those are basically that counts as to me as preliminary evidence until you see it and replicate it in human studies over time you need to be i think skeptical you need at least to be cautious in drawing inferences yeah that's enough for me guys i'll hijack this whole thing because i'll ask questions the whole time because i just i'm nerd now so sorry kayla go ahead no, you're good. I was actually going to like swing it back the other way because you guys both train very different from how I train. And since like I come from a powerlifting background and I know that you had mentioned something about how strength can also lead into hypertrophy too. So gaining more strength and also like I am younger, so I can handle it right now, but I do a lot more of like compound movements with training. And then I work into hypertrophy style, I guess you could call it versus like single joint movements, that sort of thing. Um, so with programming and stuff, how does like that gaining strength lead into hypertrophy with other movements? Yeah. So this is another really interesting question. And interestingly, there's been some controversy in the field because it had always been taken as gospel that you increase hypertrophy and that will have effects on strength. There has been some, uh, groups, some researchers have tried to question that, uh, our group and others have uh, challenged the people that are questioning it. I, I, if you're asking my opinion on the topic, I think the research is quite compelling that strength leads, uh, hypertrophy does have effects on strength. If not, as a power lifter, you'd be competing against 200 pound athletes and, and there should be equal uh, strength, right? You take that to its logical conclusion that uh, someone who's 120 or 30 pounds, whatever it is, should be able to compete against the 200 and that doesn't, 
translate into practice. And, and there's other evidence that we have. We actually published a study that uh, showed that how you statistically analyze uh, the results will have an effect on whether the strength, whether the results will translate. Um, as far as how that translates from a training perspective, it's somewhat muddy because um, yes, there, the uh, accessory exercises certainly would be, in my humble opinion, uh, important to maximize uh, a powerlifting type routine. Your primary goal is to just lift weight. It's not to gain bigger muscles. Again, that's a, a product of your muscles really is to produce strength. And how that is best put into practice, there's obviously a lot of different ways to look at it and a lot of different ways to go. Uh, training with your in lower rep ranges is, I, hopefully I'm not breaking any new ground here, but that is the most important factor. You have that one to five rep range, that lower rep range. And this has been, again, compellingly demonstrated in the literature. How you then integrate uh, accessory exercises or just some lighter load training uh, I think there's debate over that, and uh, my approach might not be what others would be. I think there's room for debate as to how to optimally uh, do that. Okay. Yeah. Just curious on that, because I know that I have heard like back and forth opinions on that too. And, you know, I might train like compound movements, but like still with bodybuilding as a main focus kind of a thing. So, um, well, here, here's one thing that I would add to that. Again, my opinion here. Um, you need to look at where your weak muscles are. So let's say your triceps are a uh, are a weak link in a chain for your bench press. If you can try to localize that, you'd want to be doing some triceps press downs over some, again, adding in these accessory movements that are focusing on your moderate to higher rep ranges uh, for that specific muscle to me would be a good idea because you're looking, you want to then try to isolate your weaker muscle. Obviously it's kind of like links in a chain. When you're doing these compound movements, you're not looking, it's not just the pecs. People think of a bench press as a pec movement, but you know that the anterior delts are heavily involved, uh, the triceps and, and even other muscles as well. So if you can then try to objectively look at what maybe your weak links in a chain to your, uh, to your performance, that's where you then to me should be focusing on your accessory movements. Cool. Um, I think then we can kind of go into the, you had mentioned muscle fiber types. So I know in one of your articles, I read it like over briefly about that, about how both types type one and type two can both obtain hypertrophy. So, you know, with training in these different rep ranges, does that make a difference onto what type, like, is it genetics, like, or a combination of both? How does that work? Yeah, that's what I mentioned before. So it's not clear. Uh, there's some evidence that uh, training with different rep ranges may be fiber type specific. There's others that don't show that. Like I said, we did a study that would seem to suggest uh, the calf study that we did that it would not, but we didn't do biopsies. So we just looked at the fact that the soleus was a so twitch dominant uh, muscle and that your gastroc, gastrocnemius, is a mixed muscle and that there was really no difference in growth when we did higher versus moderate repetitions. Um, my view at this point is, is that with equivocal evidence, it's better to earn the side of caution and say there's not a detriment to training with both. Uh, so go for it. 
you're not going to. So the other thing you kind of mentioned was about genetics. Some people are more fast twitch dominant. Some people are more slow twitch dominant. How do you know that? Well, some people, I mean, you can look at like a, you know, a marathon runner and say, you know what, I, that, that dude or gal is a uh, slow twitch dominant. You can look at like some of these sprinters and these, you know, they've never lifted a weight or whatever and they're jacked. So you say they would seem to be slow to, uh, fast twitch dominant, but even that can have variation and, and there is some variation between muscles. So you're not biopsying, not going to biopsy different people. And most, the vast majority of the general public in most muscles is going to have a mixture and it's going to vary somewhere between 40 to 60% in the majority of muscles. So you might be 60, 40 fast twitch to slow twitch and John might be the opposite 40, 60. How much difference really is that in terms of, you know, hypertrophic potential between 40, 60 and 60, 40? Uh, there, there seems to be a little bit better uh, growth in fast twitch fibers, you know, 30% maybe. But if it's that, uh, if it's that small of a divide between the two different fiber types, these are things that we just don't know through research. And I would say that you, number one, you're not going to change your genetics. And number two, the limited evidence we have doesn't seem to show that much of a difference anyway. So my view is, is that it's not going to hurt. You try it, but I certainly am not going to expect that it's going to have major differences. Okay. Good. That's awesome. Um, I think we have time for probably one more question. Um, John, did you have one more question? I think. Yeah, um, Brad, I've got one more in this, you know, Jason and I started this podcast, Kayla has come on board and really done a great job. And Brad, you and I have done a lot of work before you spoke at our physique summit conference. I've got to go up and lecture at your college, which was a blast. I'd love to do, but we'll talk about that another time. <clears throat> the thing is, is the point about me and Jason starting this is I've noticed as, as we get older over the years, we went from our thirties and now we're into our mid forties the people that follow us that listen to us, our clients, like they're all kind of aging up at the same time. So like we have this wave kind of following us. And I notice as we go, all get older, I wanted to ask you, what do you think as far as these higher rep ranges being a better approach for bodybuilders as they get older in their ages, maybe it's 50 and older for, here's my question for you. Do you think that's probably a superior way to train? And if someone wants to add volume, they can maybe add that volume and not crush their CNS as much as training in the one to five rep ranges, for example. And, and I see a lot of people getting injured that are 50 and they're still trying to bench, you know, sets of three and they tear a pec. Do you think that there's going to be some research to, to kind of support maybe the older populations as far as like being able to add that volume and not crush people's CNS? Like, do you think there's something there? So I'm not sure about CNS-wise. That's an interesting uh, area to look at. But I think even more so, it's on a joint basis. For you know, yeah. as people get older, their joints start to get uh, more susceptible. You know, osteoarthritis becomes more of a concern as people get older. Uh, recovery is, um, you know, how much of that is CNS-wise or just overall. Uh, joint-related fatigue or combinations. Th these are all the It's always difficult to know mechanistically, but certainly we do know that uh, there are issues, joint-related issues that start to happen as people get older. And certainly, you know, as I guess all of us, uh, when we were younger, did a lot of heavier lifting, uh, that can take its toll in general as well and, and start to hasten the onset of some of these symptoms. So, um, I can't give a cookie cutter answer to that, but I certainly say that 
it is a very good option that uh, training with lighter loads uh, will, uh, I mean, it's obvious, it takes, uh, it takes stress off your joints. So it, it presents itself as a very good option. Uh, there is the downside is that you get closer to failure. There, it's, It can be quite uncomfortable as you're doing, I guess, if you guys have trained with the higher reps as I have, uh, doing a 20 rep set or 25 rep set isn't fun at rep 22, 25, 23, 24. Uh, there's a real metabolic burn that starts to build up when you just want to say, you know what, enough. But um, but I would say for that's for people like like us that are looking to still optimize muscle development for your average, uh, you know, 50, 60 year old who just wants to gain muscle. Even if you're in that range, you don't necessarily even have to go that hard. As long as you're training fairly, fairly hard, but you can make a lot of your gains, a, a substantial amount uh, and really take a lot of uh, stress off the joint. So I, I do think this is a very important uh, finding that uh, lighter loads are not just glorified cardio, uh, that they do really develop muscles. They develop strength, not as much as training with maximal loads, but I think from a, uh, the vast majority of people are not looking to be power lifters or, or move heavy furniture. You know, they might look to move their chair in their office or something. And yeah. for, the, for the vast majority of people for their uh, tasks of everyday living, it will provide enough functional benefits that it really probably won't make a difference with heavier load lifting, in, in my opinion. Based in my opinion, based on what we now have is a, a substantial body of, of literature on this topic. Mm -hmm. Good. So I think we talked a lot about muscle hypertrophy this episode, but I think all in all, we can wrap it up to no matter basically what rep range you're in, as long as you have the right intensity towards that rep range, you're going to grow muscle. Is that kind of what we can conclude from everything? Well, that's, I think that's a simplified way of saying it, but I think to better crystallize that the most, I think what we, uh, the literature really seems to show that the most important factor is training fairly close to failure is that training with a high level of effort trumps everything else. Yeah. Other factors certainly can be brought into play and will have effects uh, to optimizing muscle mass. But if you just, if you're the average Joe or Jane and want to gain some muscle, the most important factor you need to concentrate on is just making sure you are challenging your muscles with a high level of effort. Other things start to become much more important when you're looking to optimize, if you're a bodybuilder, a physique competitor, powerlifter. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that does crystallize it well is that effort is, is paramount. Awesome. Yeah. I think our listeners are really going to like this episode. We had lots of good information on there. So thank you so much, Brad. Um, is thank there you. anywhere that you want to shout out or anything, um, places that listeners can find you for more information? Just that I, I consider myself an educator, uh, first and foremost, and that my primary goal in life is to disseminate uh, evidence-based information. So Google me. You know, I, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Those are my two primary social media platforms. I'm still on Facebook, even though their algorithms suck now. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, search me out. I give out free content on all those platforms and engage. And uh, if I can make an impact, uh, I'm, I'm a happy camper. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for having, for coming on today. Um, we're very happy to have you and uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thanks, Brad. Thank, thank you. you. All right. We'll see you guys later.